0: You're listening to Pursuing Justice. I'm Harriet Hendel. As my listeners know, I've been an advocate, board member, and very frequent speaker for the Innocence Project of Florida, going all the way back to 2009. And along the way, I met one of our guests, who is Bill Dillon. He has a very special place in my heart, as he was exonerated with the help of the Innocence Project of Florida. Back in 2008, he spent a total of 27 and a half years in prison, an innocent man. Bill is a singer-songwriter, and at the end of our podcast today, we will hear another one of his songs, Chasing the Dream. And I encourage my listeners to please go back and listen to part one of my time with Bill and his wife, Ellen Moskovitz. So, our second guest today is Bill's wife, Ellen Moskowitz. Ellen is a leading authority on the business of DNA testing, having run two of the largest DNA testing businesses in the country. She was VP of LabCorp of America for 20 years and president and CEO of DNA Diagnostics Center. Ellen wrote the book about Bill's ordeal that we have been and will continue to discuss today. It's called Framed, The Corruption and Cover-Up Behind the Wrongful Conviction of William Michael Dillon and His 27-Year Fight for Freedom, which was published in 2023. So welcome back to both of you, Ellen and Bill. It's a great pleasure to have you with me again. Thanks
1: for having us, Harriet.
0: Thank you, Harriet. It's been my pleasure. So where we left off last time, we kind of set the stage for the case, the time frame, all the, uh, the facts around the case, and we got to the trial, and that's where we ended. So let's begin with the trial.
2: So as you know, today, trials go on for months and months and months. Well, Bill had a four-day trial, so that tells you a lot right there. Of course, he, at the time, being 21 years old, did not have a lot of money, if any, any money at all. So he was originally appointed a public defender. The public defender came to his jail cell, said, I gotcha. Don't worry. They don't have any evidence. We, we got this thing figured out. I'll see you tomorrow. Well, tomorrow, another guy shows up. His name is Frank Clark. Bill said, what happened to my lawyer? Who are you? And Frank Clark said, well, there was a conflict of interest with the public defender's office. Because, unfortunately for Bill, a jailhouse snitch showed up and said that Bill had confessed to him when he was first put into the cell. Of course, this was not true. However, the public defender's office had to represent This jailhouse snitch. So there was a conflict. Bill could not be represented Mm -hmm. by the public defender's office. So they assigned him a street lawyer, what was known as a street lawyer back then. And that was Frank Clark. Bill was happy. He said, Wow, I got a real lawyer this time, (laughs) not a public pretender, as some of the (laughs) (laughs) public defenders are known as. And um, the two of them went to work. Well, unfortunately, As we learned along the way, Frank Clark was an alcoholic with serious problems himself. He had been disbarred by the Florida Bar. He had been reprimanded. He was a felon himself. He had transported a stolen diamond across state lines. He was known to consort with prostitutes and go to Vegas and gamble. And often would have to call some of his buddies in in the state attorney's office, who he was buddy-buddy with, to send him money so he could fly back home to Florida from Vegas once he had gambled all his money. So this is just a snapshot of this colorful character who had only done one other murder case in his history.
1: He got the job by going to the judge, Judge Wolfman, and saying that he needed money. Could he uh, assign him to the case?
2: And they certainly knew of Frank's past because apparently they used to play poker together and it was well known that Frank was not qualified to take this case. But Frank tried, or at least he seemed to try, until later after Bill was released and we were digging into the files and doing our own investigation and, and interviews of different people that we learned that Frank had written a letter at the end of the trial to the prosecutors telling them what a great job they had done. So in a nutshell, that was Bill's attorney. And as we mentioned, one of the main reasons for wrongful convictions in this country is ineffective assistance of counsel.
1: And I always told people when I was sentenced, my lawyer cried and ran out of the courtroom. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm the one that should be crying and running out of Courtroom, not you. Yeah,
0: right, right. Um, You know, one of the things we didn't mention in the first podcast, we, we went down the list of the factors that contribute to wrongful conviction. One of them is also jailhouse snitches because they have nothing to lose and everything to gain. So, so often they will lie, and that sometimes is the only Piece of evidence that you have is someone who is a jailhouse snitch. So there, to me, I, I I never understand why they're used because
1: there can't be any reliance on them no. because they're Mm-mm. they're in desperation. They're not that good a person anyway, right. Basically, just through the senses of it. But there's no reliance there, and, and you can't you just can't believe that there's a truth there.
0: That's you right. Just can't.
1: That's and right. even for law enforcement, as 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 good as they're supposed to be at it. The only the only reason they could be using them for is because it's an avenue to to get a conviction on somebody they can't get a conviction on. Remember, nowadays, if you get convict if you get arrested for murder, it takes two to three years to bring you to trial. It took them all of a month and a half to bring me to trial and convict me in four and a half days. And the
2: jury was only out for less than two hours. Yeah,
0: and the jury was only less out. less than two hours. <laughs>
1: That's incredible. I had nothing, what's nothing whatsoever to do with the crime, and they were out two hours, and and within a matter of two months, I was convicted for life, mandatory, twenty five, and gone. Poof. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. How to hide the hair, no different.
0: Yeah. Gone. Incredible. Poof, life gone. Incredible. That's correct. That's correct. Question: Did you testify, Bill, at your trial?
1: Yes, I did testify. They told me I was being too cocky.
0: What does that mean?
1: Well, she said, that's why I got convicted. That was the prosecutor. She said, I got convicted because I was too cocky. Because I knew on the stand that nobody believed me. And I was the only one that was telling the truth. And I knew then that, and I wasn't trying to be boisterous or or cocky or whatever. I was just telling the truth. I was answering the questions as I knew them and saw them. And uh, I had known prior that I had to tell them the truth, you know, whatever it was.
2: Harriet, one thing that we did do in the book, we included a lot of trial testimony verbatim from the transcripts. And so you can actually see how he was convicted, what people actually were allowed to say. And the most horrifying thing to me, as I read through the transcripts and and heard the story from Bill, was what a judge would actually allow in a court of law. And it will shock you to your core. And we've included a lot of these passages in the book. Um, there are thousands and thousands of pages of files, yeah. so we had to condense it down. But you will be you will be horrified as to what's allowed in a court of law and what was allowed in his case. And for him, as he says, to be cocky, he was fighting for his life against a mountain of fake evidence that was presented.
0: Can you give maybe just one example of something, as you say, you'll be shocked to see what, what was allowed? Can you give us a snippet of an example?
2: I, yeah, I don't want to give away everything in the book. No,
0: of course not. Because
2: it's quite involved. But there was one thing that stands out to me in my memory is that um, Bill and his brother, when they pulled into the crime scene that day to watch the waves before they went across the street to shoot pool, um, it was about five o'clock in the afternoon. The, uh, the sun was coming down, but it was the the waves were still visible. Well, they had a detective from the sheriff's department come to the trial and say that they walked upon Bill's car and started to ask him questions at the same time that the murder took place, which was between one a.m. and two a.m. in the morning. Well, it was completely false. Yes. They were never out at that time. It was
1: four days later.
2: Yeah. It was about 5 p.m. in the afternoon. So uh, things like that, which were allowed in, which were totally contrary to the facts of the case. And there is a lot of things like that, a lot of examples in the book um, and why they were just allowed to lie.
0: Yeah.
2: And they weren't checked on it.
1: Well, I guess that would be on my attorney, though, right?
0: Well, some of it.
1: I mean, who knows really what the truth is?
0: Right. Now, there was a recantation after the trial had ended. Can you explain what that was?
1: Yes, that was the witness that uh, Ellen referred to uh, as putting me at the scene of the crime. Because true to uh, causes in order to be a a murderer at a scene, somebody had to put me at the murder scene. So that woman that Ellen referred to that I dated for a couple times for two weeks uh, was having sex with the chief investigator. She eventually, her first testimonies were like mine. You know, we weren't involved and we didn't have anything to do with it and we didn't know anything about it. And then eventually her testimonies got worse and worse and worse until eventually... Her last testimony was that she had seen me standing over the body and that uh, I was wearing some of these clothes or whatever, and I had taken my yellow surface T-shirt off. But the point of the making of is that that point of uh, the trial, just going through the motions, crying, and she was saying that the police knew, and she's saying this to the jury, that the police knew I had held more evidence inside. They were just kept coming after me because my lawyer brought it up about how come the statements got worse and worse as they went along. And she said, well, they knew they knew that I was hiding something and that I was holding something in. And it just got worse and worse as it went along. But the reality was, is they were feeding her information. Hmm. And each statement she made was more correlated to the case they were making against me. And she came back after I was convicted. I guess she felt some sort of a remorse or some sort of guilt or something like that and came back within a few and says, I lied. My lawyer, Frank Clark, got her to come back in and, and say that she had lied and that she was told she would be an accessory to murder if she didn't testify this way oh, and I see. stuff like that. And the reality was, is she was a very confused minded person. Her, her whole ability to discern things and believe in things she wasn't involved in any way, and somehow she wanted to put herself in the middle of all of what it was. And It was a reckless thing. She could have ended up in prison herself just by just by doing the crazy stuff, but that's the reality of it. She confessed like a few days later, and they denied it, saying they had enough evidence to convict me with, with the dog and all that stuff. I see.
0: So her recantation was not Was denied, key. right. Yeah, yeah.
1: Without her putting me at the scene, Harriet, now— Right. How do you make murder if you don't put him at the scene? Mm-hmm. See, so she has just taken me out. She has just recanted and says that I really didn't see him at the scene of the crime. So now, how are they put me at the
0: scene of the crime? It didn't hold much water because they just dismissed it and leaned. They on just
1: dismissed it as the dog. They dismissed it as she was, of course, exactly what I said. She was indifferent. I thought it was about her own life, her own way, and. Just, I want to be popular, I want to do this and want to do that. So it was basically about that uh, in my mind. She wasn't a very good person to start with in that degree, but at the same time, it was about her. It wasn't really about me at all. It didn't, you know, the guilty feelings, I think it was not guilt. I think it was more or less, she just wasn't in the limelight no more and she wanted to be that limelight. So she she allowed Frank to tell her to change her story or whatever. And that's what the, that's what the prosecution said to the judge that they just, she's confused, and they just got her to change her story. And so they said, oh, that's okay. That's okay. We we got enough evidence without her. Yeah.
0: Now, the name Wilton Dedge comes up. Why is his case even germane here?
1: Uh, Wilton Dedge is a real good friend of mine. His case is very relevant to mine. It's actually most of the same players, the dog handlers, all the same. The different kinds of tests that were run on him were the same strategy. Moxley was his uh, prosecutor at the time. He was also the one that was friends with John Preston. They were all involved in uh, not necessarily a conspiracy for, for a conviction, but they were involved in a conspiracy to get a conviction. And the reality of that is, is they were just telling each other information that they needed to solve the case. For, for those people that I keep saying to you that, that are unaware of things, they tell them that information, which makes those people that are unaware believe automatically that they're guilty. And they've created it.
2: And as you read through the book and go through this um, with the appropriate timeline, you'll see that what law enforcement and the state attorney's office was trying to do was to change everyone's testimony by 24 hours. Because in order to put Bill At the crime scene that night, they had to change everyone's belief in when they saw him. And it's a very intriguing part of the story and too much for us to go into here. But they actually successfully were able to do that because Bill and Donna were in another city the night of the crime but they had to change everyone's testimony 24 hours to make things stick. And they successfully did it. And these are some of the things that are just shocking to the conscience as you as you learn more about this case and how they prosecuted it.
0: Well, now we're up to the appeals for Bill. What, what came of any appeals that were filed?
2: Well, Bill filed all of his appeals from prison on time as – you probably know as long as he filed his appeals on time, the state was not allowed to destroy any of the evidence, the physical evidence in the case. So he made sure that he filed all his appeals on time and he would get help from different jailhouse lawyers who were basically other prisoners who knew a little bit about the law to help him file his appeals. And he did that in every single appeal and every single one was denied, including once on his birthday. And he he maintained this throughout the years. And uh, it was only at the end, when he had absolutely no money to pay any jailhouse lawyer, that he decided to become his own attorney and to learn the law himself. And unfortunately, he only had a quick week to do it all in. And he ended up writing his own handwritten motion that was submitted to the court And that was the only one that was actually accepted by the judge. And the judge asked the state to provide a rebuttal to it. So that's a very interesting story of how that happened. Bill was up against the clock. He had a week before they were not going to allow any more post-conviction DNA testing in his case. So he had to rush. He had to learn. That's how he learned that Wilton Dedge had actually been exonerated. Oh. Uh, ahead of him was when he was researching to write his own hand written motion at the end.
0: And did Dedges' case have DNA testing that proved he was innocent?
1: It did. Yes,
0: it did. All right. So there wasn't, as we said, there was no DNA available all the way back in 1981 and through the 80s. When did you file a request for DNA testing? Do you remember when you did Yeah, that?
1: I filed in uh, 2006.
0: 2006.
1: June of 2006.
0: And was uh, Innocence Project of Florida behind you then?
1: No, I was by myself at that point.
0: I see. What happened with the DNA testing when it was finally done?
2: Well, okay. Once Bill was granted DNA testing, the next challenge was to find the evidence. Because it could be granted DNA testing and have nothing to test. But as we mentioned before, since he filed all of his appeals on time, it should have been right there in the evidence room. Well, it was not. And it took many, many, many months of fighting with the state to come up with the evidence. They kept denying that they had any. They blamed it on hurricanes. They blamed it on moving offices. Floods. Floods. Just lost track of it. Bill, at that point, had a wonderful public defender who was oh. not a public pretender at all. He was <laughs> a star who joined forces with the Florida Innocence Project at that point to defend Bill. And they would not take no for an answer. They turned that sheriff's department inside out and upside down, the (laughs) state attorney's office inside out and upside down until they finally found, believe it or not, the bloody yellow T-shirt that they waved in front of the jury eight, nine times claiming it was bills, um, as well as some other pieces of evidence that they were able to DNA test. And uh, it was very um, complicated testing. The state lab, as the prosecution insisted, would be the one to test the evidence. But Bill's new team of attorneys now were saying, no way. Uh, You guys have a dog in this fight and you cannot test this evidence. We don't really trust your results. It's going to be complicated. It's 30-year-old evidence. We want it to go to an independent, disinterested third-party laboratory. And they won that fight. It was sent out to Orchid Cellmark, which was a great lab that... um, was able to get DNA off the T-shirt, which were in the first pieces that they tested.
1: At the time, I was the longest serving. So it was very difficult because they were doing the new STR. It was all DNA testing was being stretched. Now, at this point, it was growing and growing. And uh, the 27-year span had not, hadn't been gotten to yet. So at the time, I was long serving. It only took another year before everything just blew mm-hmm. up after that for more and more longer serving. But at that point, it was crucial that we get the right testing. And then uh, they were trying to say that they didn't think there was going to be able to do any testing, DNA testing for it at that point in time. Now it'd be nothing but a drop in the bucket. Sure. But then they were saying it was, they might not be able to get any.
0: And how long did it take between when they submitted the shirt and as you say, other pieces of evidence for testing to get the results of that
1: test. It took like five months, actually, or longer, or okay. more. And all of that coincided with the fact that they were trying to say that I didn't take the right DNA test, that somebody took the DNA test for me, that uh, I had to retake the DNA test, or that some girl had just came up that said that she had given me the shirt that night. and. This is all a process of building up. From let's say, I took the, I was granted the test on July third, uh, two thousand and seven. After that, I was released on November eighteenth, two thousand and eight. So, you can see that the testing was the testing was actually finished in I think the end of July. I'm not sure exactly when we got the news, but I got I was in prison and I got the call from Melissa, one of my attorneys, another good attorney. And she told me that we have some good news for you. And I said, well, I'm the only one that knew, actually. I'm the only one that knew what kind of news it was going to be.
0: <laughs> the DNA testing, the result was linked to James Johnstone. Was he prosecuted?
1: No, uh, there, there was actually four of them that were involved. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were four juveniles at the time. They were 17 and one was 18. Oh. And they were basically juveniles. They had uh, were smoking a joint with him on the beach, and Johnstone and the victim came up to the top of the beach area, was wooded area, and uh, they proceeded to have some sort of a sexual relationship with each other. And the others came up a few moments later and saw them both naked, doing some wild things. <laughs> Johnstone, I guess, got excited and got embarrassed and everything, and started kicking and beating on the guy, and then they all joined in and started beating on him. And that was the way it was explained by uh, one of the—and he's the only one that confessed. All the other ones have denied it.
2: But there was a confession from one perpetrator, and there's a DNA
1: link
0: from the bloody t-shirt that
2: had the perpetrator and the victim's blood on it, which was found later through DNA testing. So they have a confession, and they have a DNA link. And then they have two denials, but the confession explained how it all happened. And he said that Bill, they didn't even know Bill. Bill had nothing to do with it. And that he felt guilty for the whole 27 years that Bill was in prison.
1: Yeah, they did try to put me in it, though. They really wanted them to say that I was involved in some way, shape, or form. But the answer to your question is no. They weren't Mm -hmm. convicted. And the reason why they weren't convicted was that the, the statute of limitations had run out on the way they had confessed to the crime. I see. It wasn't It wasn't intended to be a murder. It was manslaughter. The statute of limitations had run out on it. I and see. And they would run into, even though they were going to put me in the electric chair, but they just didn't have enough on me to put me in the electric chair. Even though they thought I had killed somebody, they still couldn't put me in the electric chair because I had no record.
0: So you walked out of prison what date? November
1: eighteenth, two 2008.
0: And what was it like after such an incredibly long time in prison to come out, Bill?
1: Uh, after months of not believing it was really ever going to take place, thinking that there was more and more things happening to try to stop it. I mean, you, you you've thought of many dreams in your life. And I don't know if you can even remember the dreams that in your life you thought about that come true. But for me, it was something that definitely happened and in the back of my mind i always thought would happen and i always believed it and i had the big scenery of it but it was just beautiful i thought i was being carried out of the prison i really did i mean i was elated you couldn't tell me anything i was in another world basically
0: and was was the reality was it a difficult adjustment to come into a world that you had left so long ago a different world
1: yes it was very difficult I have to say it was very difficult because even though I was lucky enough to have family still alive, and which most people don't, mm-hmm. you wouldn't think they would after 27 years. Right. And it was like I had all my family, everything. But again, my family was worried about me, too. They were all worried. I'd spent 27 years in prison. My family was kind of afraid of me. They weren't totally afraid, but they were, they were kind of, you know, they were looking at me like, Wow, he's been in prison twenty-seven years. What's he going to be like? You know, is he going to be angry? Is he going to be this way or that way? Man, I was so happy just to be out of that spot.
0: Woo. And what were you like, Bill? How, could you describe yourself?
1: I had been through the fire. I was refined. I had read books, many, many books, and I told myself that I was just going to just going to get smarter. That's all. I was just going to get smarter and try to do things, and you know, just learn and i was refined when i hit that door i was i was ready it was like just program planned for me somehow
0: that's great Uh,
1: and that's that's what i wanted to be you know i just wanted to be you know ready but i'll tell you what eric for the next what would you say uh, for the next five six seven years eight years i was completely in a fog
0: well we we know there's like a post-traumatic stress syndrome just like if you were in a war it's it's yeah. just a, a different world, prison, to what's out here. But you yeah. you very lucky, as you say, a support system is key. If that's missing, it's doubly difficult to make that transition out. Um, and did you want to talk about uh, the whole issue of compensation? 'Cause we're okay. we're just about out of time, but I'd like people to understand a, a little bit about the whole issue of compensation and you had a, a difficult time.
1: Did I do you? like that Governor Rick Scott apologized to me, though I do like that.
0: Yeah, that's good.
2: Yeah. Um, an apology was certainly primary in his healing and yeah. having Governor Scott apologized to him was so important because the state was still trying to say that he had done something. Even if he didn't do the murder, he was some. He was somehow he was involved. Of they did everything they could to cover up for their shoddy police work and, and their corruption. But Bill deserved compensation for those years. And of course, there's not ever enough money to pay for 27 and a half years no. of someone's life. And certainly the state of Florida was not being very forthcoming in trying to help him get compensation. Uh, Florida has some backwards laws when it comes to compensation. There is a compensation statute which provides for $50,000 a year for each year served. However, if you have anything at all on your record, there is something called the clean hands situation where if you're considered to not have clean hands... Uh, you don't get compensated at all. In other words, Bill had a small infraction for having a joint in his possession when he was nineteen years old. And a
1: quaalude.
2: And a quaalude that were given to him when he gave what nine kids a ride in his car. Yep.
1: They, they were they were payment <laughs> right. for a ride from a bottle club. Yeah, plug.
2: and um, bottom line is he he was considered to have unclean hands because mm-hmm. of that possession charge at 19. So in essence, the state could do anything they wanted with him the rest of his life, no matter how brutal and unfair or corrupt, and he would not deserve any compensation. (laughs) Um, So we had to fight that by putting in a special claims bill. And we got Tremendous amount of help from Sandy Dallenbert, who was the former president of the American Bar Association and former le- legislator in Florida, as well as president
1: yeah, of. Good man, Sandy. Yes. indeed. Yeah, um,
2: FSU, Florida State mm-hmm. University. Guy Spearman. And then um, a wonderful gentleman named Guy Spearman, who's a lobbyist. Um,
0: Mike Haradopoulos.
2: Mike Haradopoulos.
1: Steve
0: uh, Christofoli.
1: <laughs>
2: Hmm. yes, go ahead.
0: So these are all the people that got behind you to get that compensation, and it took yes. a while, didn't yeah. it, Bill? Yeah, it took three
1: years actually. Yes,
0: that's right.
1: They they they, they denied me the first year. They they tried to give me half in the second year, half of the compensation.
0: Yeah, which was in unacceptable. The second
1: year, and you know I wasn't. Wasn't going for that in that respect. I, I thought it was just outrageous. I, I actually thought the whole compensation was kind of outrageous. It wasn't paying for what happened in my life and taking care of my life. But at the same time, it was it was enough to walk away because I also filed a suit against the state of Florida. And and where did that go?
0: And anywhere?
2: At this point, when he was having trouble getting the compensation to go through, Barry Shack of the Innocence mm-hmm. Project uh, Network, he he stepped up. And said that he would represent Bill along with attorneys from Zuckerman Spader in Florida. Jack Fernandez, who was a big defense lawyer in Florida, would team up with the Innocence Project and Barry Sheck's team to file a civil suit against the state, which could be, you know, an enormous amount of money that Bill would deserve. However, another one of Florida's crazy laws. Gotchas. Gotchas. Yeah, good Mm -hmm. point. Um, is that any jury award over $250,000 must then be presented and go through a similar process in the state legislature as a claims bill process where they can deny it or delay it for year year after year after year after year or not even bring it to the floor. And in fact, when Bill was going for his compensation, there was another young man who was a paraplegic because of a, a traffic accident with a, a law enforcement official in Florida. And he had been completely incapacitated now for something like 12 years. They couldn't get a penny for him because his jury award of $30 million, which needed was needed to take care of him for the rest of his life, was stalled and stalled and stalled in the state legislature because they could not get that award approved.
1: He was a 17 year old kid, got run over by a sheriff at a stoplight. Oh,
2: gosh. Yeah. He, terrible. He got
1: paralyzed. That's yeah, terrible. He won a 30 something million dollar award, and he was right in front of me on the day that I was supposed to decide what I was going to take it or accept whatever. And they had knocked down his award to about
2: 8 million. About 8
1: million after he'd been fighting for, for how many years? 12, Eight, year. 12 years. His- and family just, was, was already
2: bankrupt, trying to take care of him.
1: It and, was subconsciously uh, in my mind telling me I've been looking for the answers. And there it was right in front of me. And I, I tell him, you know what? I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to take it and walk away. Go away. Go away somewhere. Yeah. That's what I did.
0: There are many states in the country that have no compensation law mm-hmm. at all. Yeah. So at least Florida has something.
1: Yeah, Florida has something, which is is good. Like you say, because it's not Louisiana or Wisconsin. That's
0: right. That's right. Yep. So we have come to the end of our time together, and this has been fantastic to hear all about your, your long journey and the book. I want people to know about the book. And on the website, uh, my producer will cite the name of the book if you'd like to uh, buy it or we'll put that in. And uh, I so appreciate your your time with me today. Thank you both so very, very much for explaining this difficult journey that, Bill, you have had, but you've kind of come through it, which is, is wonderful. And uh, I'm glad to have you both here today. Bill, before we go, we're going to play another one of your songs called Chasing the Dream, do you want to tell us something about that song?
1: Oh, uh, yes, Harriet. Before I do, I'd like to give a special shout out to you, and thank you very much for this thing. And I'd also like to give a special shout out to the Florida Innocent Project for helping me, and just just as a, just as a great group, they are really a great group. They sure are. And the song "Chasing a Dream" just came from my producer Jim Tulio asking me about. How did it really come out like that? I mean, what were, what were the feelings? What were the things? And it was basically what it was. It was a dream that I was chasing. And it just came up with the so many things in, in my heart and my mind that felt like they were chasing a dream. And the song actually gives that special thank you to DNA. That's really what it was about. Okay. The song was chasing a dream for DNA. And that's what it is.
0: All right, that gives us an idea. So we'll hear that shortly. And before we do that, next time on the podcast, our guests will be from a group based in Philadelphia, which is only about 30 minutes away from where I live here in New Jersey. The group is called Mural Arts. They recently had an exhibit called No Kid in Prison, and uh, we'll be speaking to them next time. Thanks to my sponsor, The Innocence Project of Florida. And to Jordan Moore, my producer at the Pod Cabin, please join us next time on Pursuing Justice.
3: Spent most of my life in prison, chasing a dream called justice. Chasing a dream Chasing a dream Won't somebody Please Hear my plea Won't somebody Please Set me free Surely I'm just a dream With cold steel bars In the bed Got nothing that a free man wants Living inside my head I've been here for years now being a heavy price So many lies, a twist of fate The turn of the night Won't somebody please hear my plea Won't somebody please set me free Spent most of my life Chasing a dream Called just a Chasing a dream Chasing a dream Won't somebody please Hear my plea? Won't somebody please Set me free Will hours turn to days Days turn to weeks Weeks turn to years Years of pain and grief Decades of loneliness Trapped inside a cell No one here to turn to Nothing here but hey, Won't somebody please Hear my plea Won't somebody please Set me Can it be that a man like me been doing hard time and committed no crime? But then one day everything came my way. Wanna thank the Lord, DNA. Somebody heard heard my plea. Now I'm free. Now I'm free Spent 28 years In prison Chasing this dream Called justice Chasing my dream Chasing my dream Now I'm free Now I'm Walking my my freedom Every everywhere I go, everywhere I my, free my freedom, walking, In walking my freedom, down the road, everywhere I Down the road. walking my down the road, everywhere i go. Walking, walking my, freedom walking my freedom. free, everywhere I go, I, so I Everywhere I go Walking walk my free Walking my free.